Welcome to Murder Bucket, a true crime podcast where I talk about everything from murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and also weird stuff. If you never want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be helpful if you rated and left me a review. This spreads the word about Murder Bucket. Let's see what we're going to pull out of the bucket this week. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome back to another episode. Now, as you see in the title of tonight's episode, we are going to be talking about the McDonald's Monopoly scheme. Everybody knows, or at least most people know, that McDonald's does this promotion every once in a while where when you go and get either a drink or fries or a sandwich or just about anything from them, they have those little tiny Monopoly pieces that you have to rip off, put on the little game board, and if you get a certain amount of pieces, you win something. Now, most of the time, you will either win a free fry, free meal, free drink. It's not really anything more than that. Now, sometimes there are people that will win a few hundred dollars, maybe every once in a while, like every blue moon, somebody will win more than a couple hundred dollars. Tonight, we are discussing how one guy was able to start this whole scandal and steal millions, and I'm talking millions of dollars from McDonald's over the course of roughly 10 years. But before we get into tonight's episode, let's just do our weekend slash week recap really quick. As I mentioned in last week's episode, I wasn't feeling very well, and you could definitely hear that throughout the entire episode. I was congested, I was tired, everything hurt, all of the above. Well, I didn't go to work on Tuesday, and I didn't go to work on Wednesday, but I was able to make it back on Thursday, and then my office was closed for Good Friday. On Good Friday, we had our 7 o'clock service at my church, went to that, Hung out in the back, brought some toys for our daughter, and then one of our other friends um, sat with us who also have a little girl who's about a year old. So they played most of the time during the service. Next morning, we had a big Easter egg scramble at our church where they lay out between 20 and 25,000 eggs that are pre-filled with candy. 
a lot of people in the church offer to pre-fill those eggs by taking a large like plastic tote home, buying a whole bunch of candy and spending a couple of days pre-filling those eggs. My husband and I were asked to come early to the Easter egg scramble so that we could actually help lay out all of those eggs. And there were probably maybe 15 to 20 of us that were out there in the parking lot, nine o'clock in the morning, getting all of those ready. So, you know, if you drop a plastic egg on the ground, it is going to bust open. So you have to be very gentle when you place all of these things in the parking lot, or you have to go back and close all of those eggs again. So that's what we did. The event didn't start until about 11 o'clock, and it is open to anyone. Everybody in the church can bring their children, and then everybody in the community and the surrounding area can also bring their children. There is a specific section for seven-year-olds and up, and then I believe they do four to six-year-olds, and then it is three and under. So, of course, our daughter was in the three and under area, and by the time we actually got to where we could collect the eggs, it was 11.30, 11.45, and she had been awake since about seven that morning. So she was grumpy and tired. It was also, I believe, about 75 degrees outside. And all of that candy that were in the plastic eggs had been sitting out there since 9 o'clock. So when she went to go open one of the eggs to take the candy out, she squeezed that Reese's peanut butter cup and all of that chocolate went all over the front of her outfit. I had to take her inside take off her clothes, wipe her down, and then I realized I didn't have any spare clothes in her backpack. So she rode home completely naked, just in a diaper, and her little pigtails with bows. We then came home and she took a very small nap, which really wasn't that big of a deal because she wasn't grumpy for the rest of the day. We then invited one of our other friends, Shelby, to come over and dye Easter eggs with us and our friend Noah, who lives in the house, and we had a really great time. And then we just relaxed for the rest of the evening. It's now Sunday and Easter morning. We go have church service. When we get home, we give our daughter her little Easter basket, and we just gave her like kind of little things. One of the things that we found, there is this little cartoon that she likes on Disney Plus that is called Bluey. And for anybody out there that has children that have not seen this show and you have Disney Plus or you have cable with the Disney Junior channel on it, I would highly recommend you watch this because I think it is more for the parents than it is for the children. And it's not one of those annoying, like, toddler shows. It's actually quite hilarious. Back to the story. In her Easter basket, we got her this little bluey doll that is her absolute favorite. And it goes with all of the little bluey things that you can get from Target or Walmart or Amazon. 
So they will fit in the car that you get or the garbage truck or any of the like the little scenes that they have that you can buy. And she loved it. So then we just hung out around our house for a little while and then headed over to our family friend's house. We go to their house every time we are in town for any sort of holiday. They have pretty much just adopted us since we moved to Maryland and we don't have any biological family up here besides our daughter. Like my dad lives in the Austin area. My husband's parents live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. A lot of my aunts and uncles and my brother live in the Memphis area. So we don't have like anybody like that here. So this family just adopted us and we went over there and we hung out and she's actually uh, the person who watches our daughter during the day and she is just obsessed. Well, I would say everybody's obsessed with our daughter, um, but she truly is. They buy her just really anything. So they had this big Easter basket for her. And we hid Easter eggs that we dyed the previous day throughout the yard. And she went to go find them. And then I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the confetti eggs that you can get at the store. They're just like actual like egg shells, but there's confetti inside them. And you just like either throw them on the ground or break them over somebody's head. So we got those and our daughter absolutely loved them. It was hilarious. and. Then we released butterflies. And the reason why we did this is because person who watches our daughter during the week, her and our daughter did like a science experiment. She bought caterpillars online. They did their little cocooning. They turned into butterflies and then they got to release them, which was really cute. We got this really adorable picture of me holding a butterfly while our daughter looked on and it was just adorable. And then Monday is typical. Oh my God, it's Monday. And now you're here with me and I'm going to stop babbling and get into tonight's episode. McDonald's Monopoly Scheme. Now I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast has either been to or heard of McDonald's. You know, the big golden arches that always has a broken ice cream machine, the Big Macs, the delicious french fries, and the Monopoly game. In an article on Cosmopolitan.com, explains the game like this. It's a promotion that allows customers to win prizes by purchasing food items from the fast food chain. It works like this. Participating McDonald's restaurants will be offering customers the chance to take part in the game for around a six-week period. Once the game has begun, two or three stickers will appear on the packaging of qualifying food items, such as a large fry or chicken selects, and there are three types of stickers to collect in the game. Online game pieces, property game pieces, and instant win game pieces. The property game pieces can be stuck to a board available for free in restaurants and collected in order to win prizes. In 2018, 
Customers also digitally collect and share their property game pieces on the Monopoly website for the first time. Additionally, it was also possible to win instant food prizes online. If you collect a full set, for example, all of Park Lane or the whole of Mayfair, you'll be eligible to win the prize attached to it, which could be anything from a car or cash. If you don't find a property behind our sticker, you could be granted an instant win sticker, which equates to food items redeemable in restaurants. So the very first run of this game was in 1987. It was offered in the United States, Canada, Australia, Austria, France, Germany, Hong Kong, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Russia, Singapore, South Africa, Spain, Switzerland, Taiwan, and the UK. Between 2003 to 2009, Best Buy was involved in the US version and later in the Canadian version. Now, there are laws that forbid a company from administering its own contests to prevent fraud and to make sure that all prizes are given away. Because of this law, Simon Worldwide Incorporated, or Simon Marketing, was responsible for the distribution of the contest pieces and awarding all the major prizes. According to Bloomberg.com, Simon Marketing was a full-service promotional marketing company that designs and develops promotional products and programs. The company provides loyalty marketing, strategic and calendar planning, game design and execution, premium development, and production management. Cyric purchased Simon Marketing in 1997 for $63 million in stocks and cash. They added 450 employees and 10 offices worldwide. You've probably all seen the little game pieces on the large french fries you bought at lunch or on the Coke cup. You rip them off, you either tape them to the game board you have or you keep them in your purse or wallet and maybe, just maybe, if you get the right pieces, you win a free meal or french fries. But did anyone really win a trip to Disney World, the fancy car they had on there, or that big hunk of cash they offered? That's where the story of the McDonald's Monopoly game gets interesting. Jerome Jacobson, better known as Jerry, was born in 1943 in Youngstown, Ohio. He became a police officer in 1976, but had to leave the job soon after due to a wrist injury and a neurological disorder that left him unable to work. He and his wife then moved to Georgia, and Jerry began working for Simon Marketing as a security auditor. One of Jerry's jobs was to oversee the production of the hundreds of millions of Monopoly pieces and personally deliver all of the big money winners to the McDonald's packaging factories across the country before they were put out into the world. He was always shadowed by the company's independent auditor on these trips. This was to ensure that no employee would win any of the big cash prizes. 
Jerry took his job very seriously. He would personally cut out the high-value game pieces and slip them into envelopes and then seal each corner with a metallic anti-tamper seal. In 1989, Jerry earned roughly $70,000 a year, so the temptation to get his hands on the big prize money started to become really strong. At some point, Jerry accidentally received a package from the company's supplier in Hong Kong. Inside this package were their metallic anti-tampering seals. This enabled Jerry to tamper with the envelopes. In order for him to open the envelopes with the winning pieces in them without the independent auditor noticing, he had to sneak off to the bathroom where they couldn't follow him. He would open the envelope, take the winning piece out, and replace them with non-winning pieces and reseal the envelope. He started out small by giving his brother a $25,000 winning game piece. He figured that because their last names were different, no one would suspect anything. In an article on allthatsinteresting.com, he is quoted saying, I don't know if I just wanted to show him I could do something or brag. When he was able to get away with this, he began doing it more often. Once he had a good amount of winning pieces, he needed to find some winners. Obviously, he couldn't turn these in himself or his plan would be over and he would get caught. So instead, he recruited friends and family to help find people who were willing to pay him thousands of dollars up front to secure the pieces. Once the money was received, they would have somebody else redeem the prize so that the trail couldn't get back to Jerry. In 1995, McDonald's upped their prizes from thousands of dollars to a grand prize of $1 million. Jerry then gave a winning game piece worth $200,000 to his butcher in exchange for $45,000. He talked his nephew into helping him by offering him the same thing, a $200,000 winning game piece in exchange for $45,000. In 1995, St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, received an anonymous letter postmarked Dallas, Texas. Inside was a $1 million winning game piece. A McDonald's official came to the hospital accompanied by a representative from the accounting firm Arthur Anderson and verified that the piece was in fact a winner. According to the game rules, the transfer of prizes was prohibited, but McDonald's waived the rule and made the annual $50,000 annuity payment with the final payment being made in 2014. McDonald's decided to waive this rule even after learning of the scheme by Jerry. Jerry stated in an article later on that he sent the winning piece to the hospital as a good deed so that it might secure him a more lenient sentence if he was ever caught. Things then took off even more when Jerry met Jerry Colombo, who was the head of the New York Mafia family at an airport. Colombo joined the scheme when he became one of the fake winners and appeared in a nationally televised McDonald's commercial promoting his win of a Dodge Viper. 
Columbo ended up taking the cash equivalent because the car was too small for him. He then joined Jerry in his scheme and started to set up family members and friends with a million-dollar winning pieces. During each exchange, they both received a cut of the winnings. Columbo and his wife claimed their own $1 million game piece in Boston. One of those winning pieces was given to Columbo's father-in-law and his wife's brother-in-law. They were both asked to claim these pieces separately and at different locations in order to avoid suspicion. Gloria Brown, a friend of Columbo's, was then recruited. She was told to pose as his cousin's roommate so that she could collect the money using his address in South Carolina. To make things seem legit, she recorded a message on the answering machine so that it looked like she actually lived there. When she went to go claim her winning ticket, she told reporters that she found the ticket while cleaning out her car. In an article on allthatsinteresting.com, she is quoted saying, I had to just tell, you know, outright lies. At this point in the scheme, Jerry was racking in thousands of dollars per prize. He was able to recruit many people, some of who were in on the operations, while others claimed that they had been duped in partaking in the scheme. Jerry and his wife Linda then moved into a new house in Lawrenceville, Georgia. He started buying real estate, went on expensive cruises, and had luxury vehicles in his garage. In 1998, Columbo was injured in a car accident and died two weeks later in the hospital. Jerry had perfected his method of swapping out the winning tickets and felt like he was untouchable, so he wasn't going to give up now just because his partner in crime had died. He decided to recruit new people. While on a cruise, he met Don Hart, a Georgia man who had previously ran a trucking company. Don then brought in two other men, Richard Curtier and Andrew Glum. The final person to be recruited to be the head of the scheme was Dwight Baker, an upstanding Mormon real estate developer who had fallen on hard times after he injured his spine in a tractor accident. Richard liked giving his winnings away at parties, while Andrew passed his out to old drug buddies who had fallen on hard times. He believed that if he liked you, he could make you a millionaire. Jerry tried his hardest to keep his distance from the people who claimed the prizes, but a lot of the winners had permanent residence in Georgia and Florida. In March of 2000, FBI Special Agent Richard Dent received an anonymous tip informing him of the decade-long scheme that revolved around the McDonald's Monopoly contest. This informant told Agent Dent about Jerry and how he made money off of selling winning game pieces to people. They went on to state that the last winner, Michael Hoover, was fake and was also involved in the entire thing. Michael was a casino owner who had filed for bankruptcy and was roped into the scheme to hopefully keep him afloat financially while he put his life back together. This informant also told them about William Fisher. 
He was the father-in-law to one of the people Jerry had recruited. William won a million dollars in 1996 and claimed his prize in New Hampshire. The FBI soon learned that he, in fact, lived in Florida, near where many other people who had also won lived. Agent Dent reached out to McDonald's spokesperson to relay the information he had received. Obviously, they had no clue what was going on. In an article on chicagotribune.com, Jack Greenberg, McDonald's chairman and chief executive, is quoted saying, When the FBI contacted us, we were shocked and stunned. They made it clear that McDonald's was betrayed by a longtime supplier and a highly sophisticated inside game of fraud and deception. Thomas Pickard, acting director of the FBI, is quoted in the same article saying, Multiple winners were from the same family or closely related. All appeared connected in some fashion, even though a variety of tricks were used to conceal their relationships and locations. The FBI began using wiretaps and surveillance, which led to them overhearing discussions about cover-up stories, fraudulent addresses, recruitment problems, the distribution of money, and ways to get McDonald's to speed up the payments. The FBI devised a plan to send a fake film crew to the home of Michael Hoover and do a segment on how he found the million-dollar game piece. So on August 3rd of 2001, the film crew, who were actually all FBI agents, went to his house and conducted this fake interview. During the interview, Michael told the story of how he went to the beach, bought an issue of People magazine, that issue fell into the water and was damaged, so on his way home, he bought another issue, and there it was, the winning piece. After the interview, FBI agents listened in on a conversation Michael was having where he boasted about how the camera crew had bought every word of his fake story. When McDonald's launched another promotional game, they agreed to let the FBI take control. So they were ready with wiretaps on recent winners as well as Jerry. When the winners of this new game claimed their prize, at the request of the FBI, McDonald's delayed sending out the money. This led to those who won to panic and talk to Jerry and others involved who had given them the winning pieces. This was enough for the FBI to move in and arrest those involved. At the end of August 2001, the FBI raided Jerry's home in Florida. They found the metallic anti-tampering seals, large amounts of cash, and of course, the game pieces. On August 22nd, the FBI arrested Jerry and seven accomplices and charged them with felony conspiracy to commit mail fraud. The then U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft held a press conference to announce the arrests. During this, he stated, This fraud scheme denied McDonald's customers a fair and equal chance of winning. We want those involved in this type of corruption to know that breaking the law is not a game. 
the FBI continued their investigation and eventually charged more than 50 people with felony conspiracy to commit mail fraud. Jerry was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison and was required to pay more than $12.5 million in restitution. During his sentencing, Jerry told the judge that he had made the biggest mistake of his life. Andrew Glum and three of Jerry's most prolific recruiters were sentenced to just over a year in prison. After the trial, four people who had won the $1 million prize appealed their convictions due to a constitutional violation confirming that they did not know Jerry and had no idea that the winning game pieces they were given were stolen. Because of this, the judge overturned their convictions and allowed all four of them to walk away. As of today, the FBI still has no idea who tipped them off anonymously. One article believes that Columbo's family ratted them out as retribution for his sudden death because they believe that his wife orchestrated the car accident. Another article believes that Columbo's parents tipped them off because his wife kept their grandson away from them. McDonald's wasn't able to walk away from this without any backlash or issues. The arrests caused a large public outcry against the promotional game once they learned that the scheme produced hardly any legitimate winnings over a decade. McDonald's decided that they would announce a special $10 million instant cash giveaway. They would split it among 55 winners who were chosen at random. But at this point, could you honestly trust McDonald's? Like, would you still continue to play this game at this point? After the trial, McDonald's faced several lawsuits over the next few years. Both McDonald's and Simon Marketing sued each other over breach of contract. The lawsuit eventually settled out of court and McDonald's had to pay Simon Marketing $16.6 million. After that, about 1,250 Burger King franchisees filed a class action suit against McDonald's for false advertising and unfair promotion for knowingly running the game while it was compromised. They also alleged that McDonald's diverted business away from Burger King. Burger King franchisees ended up dropping the suit after a while, but there is no confirmation anywhere online as to why the suit was dropped. McDonald's then decided in order to make up for the bad PR, they would give away $25 million in prizes, including $1 million each to people at random locations. McDonald's then fired Simon Marketing after working together for more than 25 years. In an article on the ChicagoTribune.com, Jack Greenberg is quoted saying this, Given the duration of the alleged conspiracy, the lack of any meaningful oversight, and the magnitude of the losses, it was the only responsible course of action. McDonald's is committed to giving our customers a chance to win every dollar that was stolen by this criminal ring. 
Simon Marketing was unable to recover from the scandal and they announced plans to close the business and liquidate everything in 2002. Because the trial for Jerry and his accomplices happened the day before September 11, 2001, it wasn't talked about in the media for obvious reasons. It wasn't until the Daily Beast did an expose regarding the entire scandal on July 28, 2018. The story caught the attention of actor, producer, and businessman Mark Wahlberg. He, along with Stephen Levinson, Archie Gipps, James Lee Hernandez, Brian Lazaret, and Jeff Dolan, produced an HBO six-part docuseries about the entire thing. HBO.com states this, The series unravels the twisted threads of the fast food fraud through exclusive first-hand accounts and archival footage featuring the FBI agents who brought down the gaming scheme, McDonald's corporate executives who were themselves defrauded, the lawyers who tried the case, and the culprits and prize winners who profited from the complicated scheme, as well as individuals who were often unwittingly duped into being a part of the ruse. In the docu-series, FBI agent Doug Matthews is the main person featured, but he was not the original one who received the anonymous tip. As we mentioned earlier, FBI agent Robert Dent was that main person on the investigation. Agent Dent did not appear in this docuseries. Agent Matthews was a rookie on the force at the time during the scandal and helped Agent Dent during this investigation. I would highly recommend checking out this docuseries for yourself. My husband and I watched it and you will learn some interesting information. You might even pick up on something I didn't talk about tonight. And that concludes tonight's episode. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. And like I said, I really hope you check out that docuseries. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Dead Strange Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Sophie Ray owner and host of the Dead Strange podcast. Join me every Friday as I talk about the world's most bizarre cases. From maddening unsolved mysteries to murders with an unusual twist. Be sure to subscribe to Dead Strange wherever you get your favourite podcasts and follow Dead Strange Pod across all social media platforms. Bye for now. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.